The scripture text for this morning's message is found in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 14 to 19. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Father, my heart's desire for us, and I'm sure I speak for hundreds in this room, is that we as a people would count you as our treasure and as a a precious jewel more valuable than anything else in the world. And that our affections would awaken to this estimation of your value. I pray that we would move beyond decision to delight. Beyond willpower duty to satisfied desire. I pray that you would get the glory of right thinking, but even more, the glory of fitting affections. I pray for those who are sitting there right now, quite dead spiritually, who feel nothing of what we've just sung, and who look upon you as a truth to be agreed to, and not a treasure to be cherished. I pray that you would give them life and not leave them dead. So, Lord, that's beyond my doing. I can try with words to portray a portrait of this Christ. But if you don't open the eyes of the blind and cut the calluses away from the taste buds of the soul, there's a ho-hum response. But if you would work, O Holy Spirit, sweet Holy Spirit, Many would see and taste that you are good. So I ask for the miracle of regeneration, quickening, reviving this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Two weeks ago, I drew out of verses 11 to 13 a picture. Remember it? goes like this. For those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the body 
is like a castle. In this castle, God reigns supreme as the rightful ruler. In this castle, there are servant desires designed for our good. They're not bad. God put them there. Outside the castle, pretending through and into the castle, to the throne, trying to usurp it and be a rebel, is sin. His main strategy, I argued, is that he takes captive these desires, which are intended to be good servants. He corrupts them. He sends them behind the castle walls, back into the castle, corrupted, Judas-like, as traitors, to betray the king and take captive members of the body. Might be your tongue. Might be your arm, might be your sexual organ, might be your eye, might be your ear. And to turn that into a weapon of unrighteousness against the rightful king and on behalf of this pretender sin in order that sin might reign in our mortal bodies. And we are called upon not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And what emerged from all of that was this truth. We're in a great battle. Romans 6 is all about how people who are justified by faith, apart from works of the law, defeat sin in their lives. That's what Romans 6 is all about. And what we discovered from that picture, from verses 11 to 13, is that the battle is a battle between desires. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. In other words, don't desire sin as much as you desire God. Don't desire the lie of sin as much as the truth of God. When it comes down to the conflict between what sin can promise you and what God can promise you, prefer God. Prefer God. That's the gospel message. Prefer God. Have desires stronger for God than for sin. The battle is a battle of desire. Oh, that the church... The poor, weak, carnal, lukewarm, middle class, settled in, do what you feel like doing to get easy and comfortable, would understand and realize and taste that the Christian life, the only life that leads to heaven, is a life of competing desires, not just competing decisions. It's not an accident. It's not a fluke of history or anything else that the distribution arm of this church is called Desiring God Ministries. That's not an accident. That didn't come out of nowhere. That's not a clever title. That's a massive theology. It's a massive worldview that comes right out of texts like we're in right 
now. Verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. In other words, we live the Christian life by not obeying the desires of the body. That sin is captured, corrupted, distorted, sent back in as Judas desires. And if you choose not to obey a desire, it's because you desire something else more. But, what if you have learned a kind of Christianity, a kind of Christian life, that's all willpower and no desire? What if you have never invested any prayer, any meditation, any conversation in cultivating stronger desires for Christ than for sin? What if you only think of Christ as true and don't desire Him as a treasure? I tremble at how much Christianity there is like that. I see it everywhere I go. And there's a lot in this room right now. Well, in today's text, there's a window onto the soul of such people. Because they're talking in verse 15. Paul is echoing how they speak when they hear the gospel of justification by faith. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? To which Paul answers, may it never be. So he's quoting somebody here. He didn't make this objection up. This is the way he experiences his preaching. The same person was quoted in verse 1, wasn't he? Do you remember verse 1? Look at verse 1. Chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's the same as verse 15. Shall we sin because we are not under grace? I mean, because we are not under law, but under grace. So you see, Paul's still trying to help this poor fellow from verse 1, who doesn't get it. This doesn't get it. He's got the doctrine. He listened to Romans 5 really good. He's got it. Justification by faith, apart from works of the law, based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, let us sin that grace may abound. He doesn't get it. He gets it and he doesn't get it. What's wrong with this guy? He's doctrinally quite astute. Pulls out inferences that seem exactly right and are dead wrong. What's wrong with this fellow? Gospel of Paul is the gospel of justification by faith, apart from works of the law, based on the righteousness of Christ, my, not my righteousness. So this fellow reasons, well, if I have a right standing with God by faith, if all my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, then I may as well let sin reign in my mortal body and enjoy 
its desires. That's the way a person talks whose Christianity is a group of true ideas and not an experience of the preciousness of Christ. I'll say it again. That's the way a person thinks and talks whose Christianity is an assemblage of good and true ideas with no experience of the preciousness of Jesus. Test yourself. Now, how can I help a person like that this morning? I can do three things by grace. One, I can preach Christ, which I will. That is, I can try to display the heart, the mind, the way of Christ incarnate, perfect living, crucified, rising, reigning, interceding, coming. I can, I can preach this magnificent Christ in order that His glory and preciousness and value might be displayed before your mind. Secondly, I can pray. I can even pray while I preach that God will do what I can't do, namely, open the eyes of your heart to perceive preciousness when you see it. Perceiving preciousness is an experience of treasuring, not knowing that something is to be treasured only. Perceived preciousness is the experience of value, not just the acknowledgement that value's out there. There's a difference between the heart's perception and apprehension of reality experienced for what it's worth than the mind's perception that it is worth that, but I don't perceive in my heart that it has any value by an echoing of that value with my own valuing of it. A vast difference. So that's the second thing I can do. I can pray for you, and I do right now. And thirdly, I can do the best I can to witness from my own heart that He is precious by the way I preach and live before you. That's, that's all I know to do. We're going to take two weeks on this text, verses 15 to 19. So what I want to do today is very limited, very simple, and utterly crucial. Talk about what it means to be under grace and under law. Verse 14, this is the one we skipped last week, remember? I mean, not last week, two weeks ago. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's what I want to talk about this morning. What's that mean? Because the reason it's so important is because look look how the second half of the verse grounds 
The first half of the verse, which is a promise, it's not a command, it's a promise. It's grounding a command in verse 13, but here it's a promise. Sin shall not be master over you, you justified saint. Sin will not master you. Why not? Because you're not under law. You're under grace. Now, I'm not going to talk about how that logic works this morning. Next week, I will talk about that, God willing. This morning, I just want to know, what is it to be under law, and what is it to be under grace? Okay? So if I could, I mean, I would be happy at the end of this service if, if each of you could give a definition to those two, and you cherished being under the one and escape from the other. Now I'd be really happy. Got something for your head? What does it mean? Got something for your heart? I am so glad I'm under grace and not under law. Then I would have succeeded by grace. So, let's try it. Nowhere else in all the New Testament is the phrase under grace used. So it's kind of hard to track that one down and start with it. However, the phrase under law, Paul uses seven other times outside these two verses, 14 and 15. One of them is in 1 Corinthians, and five of them uh, are in Galatians. And the other one right there in Romans 6 to make 7. Let's go to Galatians. In fact, I invite you to turn with me. You're at Romans, so flip through 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and arrive with me at Galatians. Now, Five times in this book, the phrase under law is used. And I'm going to start with verse 4 of chapter 4. This is a great Advent verse. In fact, I'll end this morning on an Advent plea. But let's see what under law means here in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, if, if we can. Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son... Born of woman, born under law. The is not there in the original. It's exactly the same phrase as in Romans 6, 14 and 15. Under law. Born under law. So that he might redeem those who were under law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, I've noticed several things. One... Somebody's in deep trouble for being under law here because Paul says he wants to redeem us or somebody from being under law. Redeem them who are under law. Second thing to notice is that Christ was born under law. So being under law for Christ is not a problem, evidently. Didn't make him sin. Wasn't dangerous and morally corrupting or... Didn't cause any transgressions to flare up or for Christ being under law was not a catastrophe like it is for us. And so evidently we should avoid at all costs, we sinners avoid being under law if we can. And Christ, in order to rescue us from that, went there. Under law. Hmm. So what might that mean? Under law. 
Here's my suggestion, and I'll give you about four or five more reasons for why I think this. I think being under law means that law-keeping is the way we will provide a righteousness that lets us stand before God. To be under law is to relate to the law so that my law-keeping provides the righteousness which I need to be acceptable to God. Then I'm under law. If I relate to the Ten Commandments, or to the whole Old Testament, the moral law, and the whole law, if I relate to that law as that by which keeping I will commend myself to God as a lawkeeper and have that righteousness be the ground of my acceptance with Him, whatever measure, I'm under law. And it doesn't make a bit of difference whether I'm doing this by faith or in my own strength at this point. Law-keeping by faith or law-keeping by self-effort would both provide a righteousness that I perform, which would then be the ground of my acceptance, my justification with God. That's being under law. That's my contention. Let's try to confirm this. First of all, I should say why that's a bad thing. Maybe maybe it's not obvious to everybody why that's a dangerous thing. The reason it's dangerous is because I'm a sinner. And if I am to provide a righteousness before God by law-keeping that will make me acceptable, I can't. I will fail every time. And therefore, for me to be under law is death. Damnation. It's all I can get under law. Was not they with Je- that way with Jesus. Why? He had no sin. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Under law was his calling. He did provide a righteousness which maintained his acceptance with God and provides the only righteousness with which we can be acceptable to God. Under law for Jesus was a glorious calling. Under law for me is damnation because I'm a sinner. I can't begin to provide a righteousness for myself, whether by faith or any other way. Now let's confirm this in Galatians 4.21 and on into chapter 5. 4.21. Paul says, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Now, background. There's a group of people, sometimes they're called Judaizers, in the church at Galatia, and they are telling people that Law-keeping at least is partly what you have to provide in order to be acceptable to God in justification. And specifically, circumcision is what they have in mind. You have to be circumcised, do your part to provide that bit of righteousness and law-keeping, which together with everything else that Christ might have done, 
will commend you to God as acceptable and justified. Now, let's see what Paul does with that. Chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. Because here are people that he says, don't you realize what you're doing? You want to be under law. Which, in Paul's mind, that was suicidal. Why would you want to be under law? Which is what they're wanting, he says. So let's read verses 2 to 4 of chapter 5 to see how Paul describes this alternative between under law and under grace. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, this is you people who want to be under law, I say to you, if you receive circumcision, in other words, if you make your little contribution to your own righteousness before God, Christ will be no benefit to you. He will not be 90% of your righteousness. He'll be zero or 100. That's it. If you try to be under law, you get no Christ. Christ will be your righteousness or not. Verse 3, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You try to give 10%, you got to keep 100 there's no, there's no piecing it out here. You just keep all the law perfectly or you take all of Christ 100% for your righteousness. Verse 4. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, by law keeping. You have fallen from grace, which is where we want to be. Now, I'll just make a few observations about that. First, you want to claim partial law-keeping by being circumcised as part of your basis of justification? Can't do it. You must keep the whole law perfectly or surrender law-keeping as any part of your justification. That's what verse 3 is all about. You're a debtor to keep the whole law. If you try to just give one part of it, circumcision. Second thing to observe is, in verse 4, seeking to be justified by law is the same as wanting to be under law from verse 21. So I would put those two phrases back to back. Verse 4, seeking to be justified by law parallels wanting to be under law in 421. One. So, being under law is relating to any part of the law as that which must be kept in order to provide some righteousness on which I can stand acceptable to God. Any part of it. Any part of the law that you choose to stand on as part of your righteousness, even faith. Because faith is the standing. It's what you're on that counts here. That's what we're talking about. What's the ground of justification? What's the ground of your acceptance? What is God looking upon when he says you're okay? Come on in. What's he looking at? Is he looking at the righteousness that Christ provided for us? On which we are leaning wholly? 
Or is he looking at a little bit of that and a little bit of the righteousness that we contribute to that? Say 99 plus 1%. Little circumcision or a little Bible reading or a little baptism or a little Lord's Supper or a little something that I can contribute to the ground of my acceptance with God in justification. Let's go back to Romans 6 and see if we can see this in the context. I don't want to read Galatians into Romans 6 or vice versa. I want to see whether or not they're pointing in the same direction here. And I see two confirmations of this interpretation of under law and under grace. In verse 15 of Romans 6, the mistake that this man is making when he says, Shall we sin? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? What makes that objection plausible? I mean, you can't, Paul would not deal with a straw man here. He's not, he's not a politician. And I know that's an overstatement. I don't mean to be down on all politicians. I just feel that way. <laughs> Forgive me. And I will repent in due time. <laughs> Paul is not that way. He doesn't create straw men in order to divert from the real problem. This is a real problem. This man has a plausible objection. Where does it come from? It does not come from saying that being under grace means we're under the power of grace that keeps us from sinning. Because then nobody would object. Well, if we're under grace, let's keep on sinning. Because being under grace means you can't sin. It's not plausible if you interpret it that way. It's plausible if being under grace means Christ is all my righteousness, all my forgiveness, and I can't contribute anything to it at all in order to be accepted by God in justification. Then the objection becomes plausible. Well then, let's sin and get the best of both worlds. Everlasting joy with God and all the crummy pleasures of this world that feels so good to us now. That's plausible. Paul wouldn't have wrestled with this for a whole chapter if it weren't plausible. And so that's my first confirmation from this chapter that we're on the right track here. That being under law means that some of the law is treated as that which I, if I keep, I can provide some of my righteousness, which God accepts as the ground of my justification. And being under grace would mean exactly the opposite. Namely, Christ is all my righteousness. It's a gift of grace. I receive it by faith alone. And that's under grace. The second and last confirmation of it is found in verse 1 and what verse 1 was kindled by, just like we saw verse 15 and what it was kindled by. Now you remember verse 1 got the same objector saying, let's sin that grace may abound. Well, where did that come from? Where did that objection come from? Back up with me into chapter 5 now. Let's start at verse 17. I just want to put some, some flesh on verses 20 and 21, which are the key source of this objection. Verse 17, notice the phrase, 
Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. What is the gift of righteousness that flows from grace? What is it? Next verse, 18, second half of the verse. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life. So the gift of righteousness in verse 17, I would argue, is Christ's performance or acting of righteousness, which results in our justification. My justification rests upon the gift of righteousness, which is Christ's deed, not mine. Christ acts this righteousness. The result of his acting this righteousness is that justification of life comes to me as I am in Christ by faith. Now, let's go to verses 20 and 21. Because Paul sums it all up here and it gets him into big trouble. And preachers of grace have been in trouble for 2,000 years on this issue. Verse 20. Where sin increased, this is the second half of the verse, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Now notice how similar that is, righteousness to eternal life, to verse 17 and 18. Through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the objector hears that and he interprets it right. He gets it right. He says, well, let's keep on sinning then that grace may abound. But he's drawing that not because grace here is primarily a power that keeps you from sinning because then the objection wouldn't be plausible. He's drawing it out of the fact that just like verses 17 and 18 taught, there's an alien righteousness performed by Jesus Christ, looked upon by God as sufficient for all His people, and everyone who receives this gift of the righteousness of Christ is now justified on the basis of that righteousness, not my own. And all my sins are covered. And all that is expected of me before the law has been done for me, in the performance of Christ, so let sin that grace may abound. That's a real problem because it's really a problem. And that's why chapter 6 is written and that's why next Sunday's message is so important. Because I'm not going to try to explain the logic of 14a and 14b today. Because 14a says, sin will not be your master because you are under grace and not under law. And we got to figure out, well, why is that the case? If being under grace means I have an alien righteousness and all my sins are forgiven and it's by faith alone apart from works, how come that means sin won't dominate my life? That's next Sunday. So what I want to do to wrap up this morning is simply... State again what I think the meaning of the two phrases are and close with a kind of Advent plea. Summing it up, to be under law is to treat 
the law so that law keeping becomes part of the righteousness which makes my justification valid. Stick. It's part of the righteousness on which my justification rests. To be under law is to treat law-keeping as part of the righteousness that makes me acceptable to God. To be under grace, on the other hand, is to have grace providing for me a righteousness in Christ, which is not my own, which in Him I receive by faith so that God sees me as complete as Christ is complete and as righteous as Christ is righteous so that all His benefits can now freely flow toward me as an acceptable one in the Beloved. It's a great place to live, folks. And my question to you is, is that precious to you? Or just words? It's a frightening question, isn't it, right now? You're sitting there, we're done, and this pastor is asking me about something over which I feel like I have no control. Is this precious to you? To be under grace. Does Christ feel precious to you this morning, right now? Having done the best I can to display what it means to be under grace. Is it landing on you as a treasure? What could be more precious as a sinner under the judgment of God than to know that the acceptability is not something I can perform, nor do I have to perform it. It is a gift that I receive wrought out for me in the life and death of Jesus Christ alone so that He gets all the glory because we not only know Him truly, but we cherish Him Duly. Now, I don't know the answer to that question right now in your life. But here's my plea. Next Sunday, we move into Advent. Advent, chapter 4, verse 4. In the fullness of time, the Son of God came, born of woman, born under law. Why? Why? Because that's where we were being crushed by the impossibility of doing it. And he lifted it up with his broad shoulders and says, I'll do it. And then, by faith alone, as we just fall with an awesome sense of the preciousness of it all into him, it's ours. It's ours. If we receive it as a treasure. Not just decision, desire. Not just logic about ideas, love about a person. Not just truth, a treasure. So, if the answer to the question right now is no, I don't feel it is precious. Don't, don't despair. Please don't despair. Would you join me in 
an Advent quest for God. Don't walk out and say, well, I guess, I guess I'm just not designed to be that way. Don't do that. Don't do that. Ask God, like the psalmist does over and over again, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you all my days. He's asking that God would do it. Make me know you as precious. Make me feel you as a treasure. And then secondly, turn off the television. Turn it off. Nothing there will commend him to you as precious. And instead, meditate on the things of Christ. Take a walk and look at the glories of nature. Open your Bible. Read a biography. Get this mind in pursuit of what you must have. You must have it. Don't settle for anything less than cherishing Him, treasuring Him, counting Him as precious. If you've grown up in the church and it's all been decision, 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 go to church, read your Bible, do this, and no cherishing. Plead that you would be awakened. Plead that you would be awakened. I plead for you. So would you stand with me for closing prayer? I know it always feels abrupt here as we close and and look you don't have to walk out of here you can sit right back down when we're done and and deal with God so let's pray Jesus you are treasure that we seek you are a precious jewel and to give up pursuing you we'd be a fool and so I ask that you'd come now and have mercy upon us all none of us in this room cherishes you like we ought we're all on the way we're all up and down and all over the emotional map but oh God there's a reality here love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your might and all your strength and all your mind there's a reality here grant us to see wonderful things out of your law Grant any who've come this morning who don't even know Christ to see Him as necessary and as true and as precious and to close with Him right now by receiving Him as the treasure of their life in the very heart. May all your saints be encouraged and helped on into Advent as we pursue the preciousness of Jesus together. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And everybody said, Amen. You're dismissed.